There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Oh, hey, and welcome to another episode of The Hunting Collective. This happens to be episode number 74 getting well on into august we are joined today by a bunch of cool guests we have the one the only the magical man of the mountain remy warren we also have phil the engineer and we did a lot of talking about remy's new podcast called cutting the distance here on the meat eater network subscribe to that sucker right now and we did a lot of talking about what it means to podcasts and we did we uh, did some dramatic readings of uh, internet comments some negative some positive hope you like that as well. And in the interview segment of the show, we started talking about Boone and Crockett Club, its history, the history of Fair Chase, the history of trophy measurements, all of that with Keith Balford from Boone and Crockett Club. It was a great and interesting conversation. So hang on for that. But before we get to it, we're going to talk about the new men's solitude system from First Light. This is for all, specifically for all of you whitetail fanatics out there. Those of you who like to sit up in trees all day uh, during the fall, which I do. Uh, this is a system that includes a top and a bottom. Both of them are fitted with 37.5 synthetic insulation. They're silent. They're durable. They're also DWR treated to propel moisture. They've got a really neat little fleece lined chest muff. You put your hands in and these little zipper pockets and you put them right in the chest muff so when you're standing all day, you guys know that your hands are the first thing to get cold. And it's got full sip legs for venting and all that fun stuff. So if you're a whitetail fanatic, go to firstlight.com and check out the men's solitude system and a pretty cool video by none other than our own Mark Kenyon. At least he's the voiceover of that. So go to firstlight.com. Check it out. Without further ado, episode 74. Let's go. Yes, I grew up on an older road. A pedal to the metal, always did what I told. 
Until I found out that my brand new clothes I came second hand from the rich kids next door And I grew up fast, I guess I grew up mean There's a thousand things inside my head I wish I ain't seen And now I just wander through a real bad dream Or feeling like I'm coming apart at the seams But thank you Jack Daniels Oh, number seven Hey everybody, it's episode 74 of The Hunting Collective I'm Ben O'Brien as always and it's uh, you're gonna hear this on eight thirteen, nineteen, and hunting season is is barreling toward us, like a wave, on an island in Hawaii. Can I say Hawaii? No. Yeah, you can say whatever you want. Hunting season is getting close. It is early close. mule deer tags. Oh man, antelope tags. I got a few early season mule deer tags. Yeah. An antelope hunt I'm planning, and then it's, and then it's the Super Bowl of. The elk. archery season. Elk. The old elk rut. You're listening to the voice, the sweet velvet voice of Remy Warren. That's a good time for me to be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Remy Warren, host of the brand new podcast on the Media Network called Cutting the Distance. Yes. What are you, how are you feeling about that, Remy? I'm really excited. What I really am excited about is, uh, yeah, to just get some, get some info out there, tell some stories, uh-huh. share some stuff. Yep. And uh, hopefully people like it. Yeah, we've been working on this for a long time. Um, it seems like a very long time. Uh, like, it's finally out in the world. Before podcasts even exist. Yeah, we were <laughs> <laughs> working on this in the early 90s. Yes. <laughs> when we were 8 and 10 years old, respectively. Yeah. I have uh, like a little plastic recorder. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> Just listening to childhood tapes. And finally. finally <laughs> One of those play schools with the built-in <laughs> microphone. <laughs> yeah. Or like the talk boy from Home Alone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dude, they should find that. There's probably some pretty good podcast episodes buried on that. <laughs> well, finally, it's out in the world. The first episode was about missing the biggest buck. Of your life. Yes. A giant, big, fat mule deer buck. Big buck. Big buck. Tell us a little bit about that story, what they might hear if they go go over and listen to Cutting the Distance. Yeah, I think, well, you'll hear the story of one of the biggest deers I have, deers I have ever encountered. Mm-hmm. And the cool thing about that story is, although I did not actually get that deer, I learned a lot that I've taken with me many a days into the field and that's the thing and you should learn something from every hunt you go on and if you aren't you aren't doing it right so i really like to be able to tell some stories that some of them i've never told before a lot well most of them and so you get that entertainment factor but then you get a little takeaway of some stuff you can do to be a better hunter and things that i've learned just along the way just being out there hunting guiding um, in the outdoors yeah i think uh, everyone here, Ranella, myself, everyone included, would put you at the top of the top of hunters we've ever met, at least, or hunted with. And so, in thinking of this podcast, it's like, man, what's the best person to to have, you know, like a really core tips and tactics podcast? That's how we originally came at it. And then as it morphed along, we're like, man, we got to have stories in there because they're so connected to the actual activity. And there's you couldn't have tips and tactics without these experiences and connecting the two things, I think is what this is about. For sure. You learn so much through hunters are great at telling stories. We all have our hunting stories. And I think about some of the things that I've learned and it's just been from stories from friends or grandparents, parents, just hunting stories. And you, you remember those things, you know, you'll probably learn more from the story than the actual tip. And that's, that's right. That's the goal. Be entertained and be a better hunter. Yeah. And the, that's, that's a what, win-win. We were talking about that earlier. I mean, I think it's just like being able to, 
young Phil over here has got he's got magic sounds that that he can put with the, with the storytelling that make him that really suck you in. I think it's important to kind of feel like you're there, understand these scenarios, and then next you know the next time that you go through missing a <laughs> the next time you see a giant mule deer buck, guaranteed you'll be thinking of that arrow flying over the back of of the big giant. Oh giant. yeah. Yeah, anytime you can take something, and I do it all the time. There's so many things that I've learned. A lot of a lot of hunting learning is through trial and error. But if you don't have the time to go out every day of the season, you you can get your trial and error through my trial and error, yeah. you know, <laughs> or yeah. through friends or articles. There's just so many places to to gain experience, even wh- today, while even not being out there. Yeah. So you can take those lessons. And you'll be presented with a similar scenario and you'll say, well, at least I've got some ideas on how I should properly act yeah. in this situation. Yeah, and this goes way, way back to really when hunting media began and people started to communicate about hunting. That's what it was. That's what the communication was. It's like, here's my experiences. Here's a feature story about, you know, Fred Bear going out on a hunt. But then also here's how to do a thing that I'm doing. That's been the way hunters have communicated for as long as we've been communicating in print form, at least. Oh, well, you know, I mean, often. think about cave art. Yeah. It's just yeah. dudes <laughs> scratching hunting stories with rocks. Arrow, animals, hunted. Me. Yeah, meat, fire. Yeah, and you'll see, you know, especially in our network or podcast, this one included, we do some silly things on this show, and we do some real serious things. And part of thinking about building a network of podcasts that are all interrelated in some ways to, is, is to make sure they all are complementary of each other. And your show... I feel at least, really dives down to like the core of how we talk to each other. We tell stories, we provide tips and information, and that's like that's what hunting communication is, and that's what it's kind of always been. And so we have a lot of, we do a lot of different things. We have Callahan who just talks about inane zoology and random, you know, mice infestations at Disney World or whatever he's talking about over there. What you're doing, I, I'm glad to see it because it's just that kind of a core exercise in what we do. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. So I hope people check it out, yep. enjoy it, subscribe to it. Head over there. Should be coming out weekly. So Weekly. We're already rocking We're rocking through some episodes. Right yeah. after this, we're going to record some. And we've got the second episode. You go through the bear attack on a fog neck oh, island. Yeah. And then give some tips about safety in the bear woods and how to understand why a bear might attack you. Yeah, I think there's... Uh, even if you think, oh, I'm not going to be elk hunting anytime soon. Well, first... You should go elk hunting. But second, yeah. there's an entertainment factor outside mm-hmm. of just the tips that you can take, as well as a lot of these tips can be translated to a lot of different things in different places where you hunt. So it would behoove you behoove you to check it out. Please check sure. it out. And one thing that I wanted to do to help prepare you for podcast life, because it's your first podcast, right, that you've yeah, had. Yeah, it is. I've had a podcast for some time now, and it, and it comes with some good and some bad. Uh, right, Phil? Uh, I mean, I haven't been in the line of fire as much as you have so far, but <laughs> uh, I, I would assume, yes, you've probably seen some, uh, some, some good and bad. Yes, we've seen some good and bad. And so I figured, and this is also in the, in the frame. Last night I was watching uh, celebrities read mean tweets on Jimmy Kimmel. I oh, find yeah. that to be hilarious. So I figured, why not do have Phil the engineer read... Some, some mean tweets. Some mean, some mean comments about this show. Oh, great. Can't wait. Yeah. This is going to get either, this is either going to be a winner and people are going to love it or it's going to be the most awkward time we've all had together. 
What do you think? <laughs> Go whatever you want to do. <laughs> do. It's your show. It's my yeah. damn show. <laughs> All right. That's Phil. why I have my own. We're going to start. <laughs> it's never going to happen on Cutting the Distance. <laughs> Here we go. We're going to start the music. Mm. I'll provide Phil now with the first comment to read. Phil, read it in your best and most theatric voice. Take it away, Phil. I listened to podcasts all day at work, and I was starting to run out of content, so I subscribed to THC. I love the other Meat Eater folks, so I assumed I'd love this too. Wrong. O'Brien is just that guy who gets under your skin as soon as you hear his voice. I can't put my finger on why he is so annoying, (laughs) but he is unbearable. He tries to be funny, but fails. And he is hanging on so tightly to Ranella's coattails <laughs> that I get embarrassed for him. I just can't force myself to stomach this podcast. <laughs> that guy should meet you in real life. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, stop reading the shit that I read. <laughs> just kidding. Just I'm joking. <laughs> I feel like that was entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> no. I I like this new segment. It's yeah, pretty funny. Oh, the music oh, really set the tone. Really I kind of got I got chills. <laughs> let's read Let's read a good one though, too. All right, you let's gotta, read a good you gotta one. Balance it. You got to do like a compliment sandwich. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll get a good one going here. And um, there's, I mean, listen. I love all the commentary, even that one. <laughs> the title of that one that you just read, just, <laughs> just awful, awful. <laughs> just awful. <laughs> all right. All right, Phil, you want me to get you the music going again for you? Yeah, sure. It helps a lot. All right, here we go, Phil. This one, read this one. It's called Top 5 Best Hunting Podcasts in the World. This is in the top five of all hunting podcasts being produced on the planet. Not by viewership, recognition, industry respect, or anything tangible like that. (laughs) Actually, it's still relatively obscure, meaning you can start listening now and then tell everyone how much better it was before, quote, everyone started listening and Ben sold out, unquote. He will, he's a total hipster scum, might even be a green decoy. But the kid is going places, and you shouldn't miss this opportunity to capitalize on his eventual takeover of the hunting podcast segment. Honestly, though, it's an extremely thoughtful look at hunting and what makes our lifestyle so rewarding and complicated. The show doesn't take itself too seriously, but the topics covered are often crucial, controversial, and consequential. Pause for a little moment of silence to think about what we've just heard. And we're back. (laughs) And we're back. And we're back. Well, that was a good one. I don't know if the music really fit um, the positive review. I'm just digging the music. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I thought it was. It, it leaves the viewer to decide. <laughs> All things, some things considered, with Ben O'Brien <laughs> and the Hunting Collective. Some things, a couple of things considered. This yeah. is the world you're breaking into, Remy. Mm. It's a bittersweet cocktail of emotions. Mm. What are you feeling about it? I quit. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. That's it. I'll see you guys later. Well, now that we've gone through that uh, emotional time, we're going to get pretty soon to our interview segment, and that's Keith Balford from the Boone and Crockett Club. 
and we're going to go through we go through the history of Fair Chase in the history of kind of the Boone and Crockett Club and it's an influence on conservation in the grand old country of America. But you were telling me, Remy, that uh, Keith measured one of your biggest bucks of all time. Is that correct? I think so, if I remember correctly. What's, he, the, what's that buck about? Uh, that was one that I got in Montana with my bow. Oh. And uh, yeah, it was, that was a really cool hunt. We talked about that a little bit with Keith, like the difference of, you know, they're pushing Boone and Crockett kind of as this arbiter, not arbiter, but at least a microphone for fair chase and these conversations. Many people traditionally see it just as a record keeping. Dude, Boone and Crockett, I I haven't listened to this yet, but Boone and Crockett Club has done some pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Um, There's a place actually in Nevada, the Sheldon Wildlife Antelope Refuge. Antelope were saved because of the Boone and Crockett Club. Like it's just hunters getting together saying we need to regulate, like, we need to regulate this pretty much from commercial hunting. And then they, the record keeping is just a form. I see it as a form of really showing the progress of yeah. where the genetics have gone. It's it's a measurable, it's something measurable. And you yeah. just compare apples to apples. And yeah, it's not fair that you're, the way a score is, you're taking, you're deducting from a grow. It's just be- be- beside all that stuff. It's really cool to just be able to see, you know, the changes over time. And I think, I don't know, maybe somebody else has brought this up, but I honestly think right now is the good old days. It is the good old it's days. It's the good old it's days. The, there's there no is, it's just, there's more game. There's bigger animals according to our measurement system or the Boone and Crockett type measuring system. Now, maybe there are different, and, and just the advancements of technology and hunting tactics have changed, which make it, I don't know. There's just, it's, you yeah. look through that, and it's just like, man, there's some cool stuff going on right now. Oh my god! And it, you it's know, a good it's, success story. It's still fraught with lots of issues, but it's never, it's never not going to be, you know, fraught with all types of issues when it comes to wildlife yeah. management and ecosystems. But there, like I said, there's more opportunity than ever. There's a movement for public lands and access. There's a movement for better wildlife management. There's a movement to educate people about what hunting has been. And when you listen to Keith talk about the Boone and Crockett Club, you'll suddenly forget that they've ever measured a bone in their life. They yeah. ever measured an antler in their life. You'll forget that because there's so much there's so much weight behind the history of that club that you there you almost think, well if I'm going to tell the story of the Boone and Crockett Club, I would almost the trophy scoring aspect is a footnote to what they've done and what they've meant for conservation. So yeah, for sure. Keith is a good was a good arbiter of kind of like what's important and why uh in that conversation and you know like i said in your podcast you talk about a biggest buck you make some good comments in your first podcast about you know why yeah it's the biggest buck i've ever seen but like why is it important to me to go chase that you know i love a good big buck just like the next guy but there's, there's something about you know if you think about it you're like you're hunting one deer or a certain deer you actually get more hunting experience. Like for me to chase what would be considered, uh, if I'm looking for like a deer that is a good scoring or like a, what would Boone and Crockett would consider a big buck. It just puts restrictions on me of what I'm hunting for and allows me to be in the field longer. Yeah. And that more time spent in the field, if I don't fill my tag, that's just time acquired, like experience gained, which overall makes me a better hunter. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it's and 
looking from the outside in, people might think, well, he's just chasing big antlers. But it's just that's just not what it is. I mean, you no, are, but it's not the only thing that matters. No, it's me. It's chasing the experience, and it's hard to get that experience if you go home on the first day. Yeah, because those bigger deer are harder to find and harder to get. And a lot of times, if you're like, I'm just going to go after one type of buck, you're probably going to go home empty-handed. Yeah. You're probably going to hunt the whole dang season. <laughs> and during that season, you're going to learn so much about what you're chasing yeah. that you know it's going to make it even easier next time. Oh, for sure. It, it, all the things you do, you know, you just got back from a mouflon hunt. You have been in Lithuania this year, Australia. Lithuania, get that right? Is that where you uh, Yeah, but I, I was hunting in the UK and then Australia, New Zealand. Everywhere. All over. Yeah, lots of different places. All over. Right. What's the pinnacle for you right now? Like, what's the pinnacle hunting experience? Because hmm. I don't I, mean, I don't think there's anybody that I know that hunts as hard and as long as you do in different places. So, I, I, mean, so I really like, obviously, I really like sheep, sheep mountain goat type hunts. Um because of the terrain, it's the country that you get to go in. And I feel like it's a really rare opportunity. So when you get those opportunities, it's just, it's special because you don't, I mean, there's a lot of times, you know, that's the kind of hunt that I want to go on, whether it's just a friend draws the tag or whatever, because you don't get those opportunities that often. So anytime I get that kind of opportunity, I'm pretty excited. But one thing that I do love is chasing high country mule deer early season with my bow. That's, um... There's just something about it. I love that high high desert, high alpine type stuff, whether it's Nevada or Montana or wherever. It doesn't matter. I love that high country type hunting. And then, I mean, I've made my living since graduating high school as an elk guide. So for me, <laughs> yeah. calling elk is the bee's knees. I love calling elk for people. I'd rather actually call elk. That's the best part about bow season is calling elk. I love calling and you, I'm going to do some episodes, some podcast episodes on calling elk. Yeah. We're and gonna... you will understand my <laughs> passion and my philosophies. And maybe it's, I hope it's stuff that nobody's heard before from other people. Because the way I elk call, I was taught by the elk. I know. <laughs> it's just like I, it. I decided That's I go out, awesome I went out there it. and I did not really listen to, I just, I just started learning from the elk and then mimicking that. And so I probably have some techniques that I do that a lot of people probably think or don't know about or think are weird or think are wrong and they aren't because yep. you know you, in order to be a successful elk guide you have to successfully call saying, elk in and you got to get good at it you fast. back it up to a lot of people and i think in this podcast i tell people i'm i've hunted a lot but i would never i i very selectively level tips because i just think it's it's something that you really have to have your mind wrapped around and really have to have done there's i've had some successes where i tell you stories but there's very few pursuits where i feel like an expert turkeys maybe and there's some different things but but for you your whole your whole business of being an elk guide is being able to complete that process yeah that's it oh yeah and you got to do it regularly every week whether it's a good week or a bad week like the animals don't i think one of the things that i will talk about is people call i read so many articles of people saying elk are call shy We'll talk about that later. <laughs> Stop <laughs> saying episode, that, boys. <laughs> another episode of Cutting the Distance. Yep. All right. Well, Remy's podcast is lo- just launched this Thursday. And so we're a couple, five, six days in. It's already getting some some good reviews. And I feel like we'll, we'll end this little segment with a little bit of uh, good review reading by Phil the Engineer. You ready, Phil? Yeah. A little soundtrack action. 
This is Hall and Oates. Ready? Yeah, sounds good. All right, read the this review of Remy Warren's Cutting the Distance. Great start. Remy has a great concept to start his podcast in the way he has. The storytelling is on point, and how he pivots those stories to educational takeaways for others to benefit from is really cool, and I can't wait to hear more. I hope he interviews other hunters in the, in the community and allows them to share their stories in detail and things they've learned in those instances. I wouldn't mind the episodes being longer than 30 minutes. Thanks. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, guy. Or gal. I love when that sax kicks in and really makes that review. That's good. Really picks that review up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, here she comes. All right. Thanks, Phil. Cool. Yeah. yeah. I really appreciate whoever uh, dropped that little nugget in there. <laughs> and we do appreciate that. Mm. And we, we appreciate all all reviews. We're making having a little fun with it all here. But, but honestly... We can't do this without feedback. Remy can't do his show without feedback. I can't do mine without feedback. Good, bad, and different, it all is important. Um, as Remy says in his podcast, if it's bad, maybe just email it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if it's good, leave I it can, in the reviews. I can address your concerns. <laughs> yeah, in, yeah. A, in a better way. In a better way. But yes, we, we very much uh, appreciate all that, and all the feedback comes into the emails. Remy's got an email, remy at com. Or you can, know that. Yeah, you do. Cool. <laughs> yeah. You can email Remy at TheMediator.com. It comes right to his inbox and mine, too, so you never know who's going to reply to you. Well, it could be one of <laughs> if them. It's, if it's, like, snarky reply, it's definitely not me because <laughs> I'm pretty chill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if it seems a little, if it seems a little uh, overwritten, it's probably me. So do that. Go find Cutting the Distance. Give it a five-star rating. Subscribe. It'll come right into your podcast platform every week. Then they'll have Remy Warren right there with you. Sweet. Sweet. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Appreciate it. All right. We're going to get to, we're going to travel back in time about two to three weeks. We had Keith Balfort from Boone and Crockett in this room to talk all things trophies, all things conservation, and a real deep dive on Fair Chase. I enjoyed it. Hope you will too. Give it a listen. Keith, how's it going, man? It's good. Going good, Ben. Welcome to the the Meat Eater uh, Studio. The Meat Eater Studios, World Headquarters. World Headquarters. What do you think? I like it. I like it. I like everybody's dress cash. Yeah. Very, very uh, Montana. It's a flip-flop friendly office. It Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Some people um, take it too far, I feel. Um, But you just, you got to walk that back every once in a while. Uh, Looks like a lot of surfers here. <laughs> not, a lot, not a lot of surfing in Bozeman. No, not that I've seen. We, we're a dog-friendly office, a flip-flop-friendly office, and a hunting-friendly office. Uh, we've got surfers in Missoula, right? Not in front of our offices. That's true. Well, um, why don't we start by telling people who you are? That's always good. I always like to ask people to describe the surroundings, but um, we've described these surroundings many times already on the show, <laughs> so we'll skip that part. But... Um, yeah, tell people who you are and where you work. Who are I? Well, I am the director of marketing for the Boone and Crockett Club, and our world headquarters is three hours up the freeway from here in Missoula, Montana. Yes, sir. And I've been there, dare I say, 18 years now. Wow. Yeah. You've seen a lot of change in that organization over that time. A lot of change in the organization, um, a lot of changes in our hunting industry. Um, I've been in the industry for, well, God, 30 years or more. <clears throat> so I've seen a lot of changes there, too. Yeah. Um, mostly for the good. Yeah. Knock on wood. This is wood, isn't it? 
Yeah, it is wood. Okay. I, or it's like some facsimile of wood. Um, tell people, I, I think there are, I would posit that there are misconceptions about the Boone and Crockett Club out there. Do you agree with that? Oh, like yeah. Some people just think it's like the Big Bucks, Big Bulls Club. Yeah, it's that primarily, um, or, you know, a bit, bunch of rich white guys sitting around. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's understandable. I mean, the, the records book and the records program is, is the public face of the club. It's the longest standing thing that people are aware of. Um, but actually, you know, if you were an accountant, it's about 10% of our budget. Um, our main thrust since day one was, has been conservation, Advancing conservation, establishing it, establishing the institutions of conservation, the funding, this, this all the way goes back to Teddy Roosevelt, mm-hmm. who founded the organization with George Bird Gunnell in 1887. Yeah. Yeah, that's the most kind of the next thing I want to talk about, the history of the club, because I think Boone, we know who Boone and Crockett were. Yeah. <laughs> we're all aware of those names. Um, maybe not the genesis of the club so much, though. So take people through that period with with Colonel Grinnell and, and well, Teddy. Well, if, if you're a sportsman, uh, a hunter, and a conservation, it's a great story. And and I won't be able to cover it all entirely here, but I can give you the, the nickel tour. Please. Um, Roosevelt, you know, before he became president, uh, he was very keenly interested in nature, a naturalist. He collected birds. He did, you know, at-home taxidermy. Um, he aspired to live the hardy life of the outdoors, um, was kind of a sickly child. The doctor said, you need to get outdoors, split wood, ride horses, shoot, you know, all that kind of stuff. And his, his exploits led him out west where he bought a, a ranch in uh, the Dakota Territory, tried his hand at cattle ranching, was there for a couple years anyway, and... Uh, that really where he bore witness to what was happening with our wildlife in particular. Um, there's accounts of him saying, you know, he wanted to hunt a buffalo before they're all gone. And, you know, he said, you know, we were never in sight of a live buffalo or out of sight of the bleached bones of, of buffalo. So he came back to New York uh, in December of 1887. Uh, prior to that, he had struck up a friendship with George Bird Grinnell. Those two hatched the idea of forming a coalition of their buddies, who were all sportsmen, to address the decline of wildlife, especially big game on a national scale. Um, at that time, there were some small sportsmen's clubs that had merged trying to uh, right the ship, if you will, because wildlife was vanishing at an alarming rate. Yeah. So Roosevelt invited 12 of his best buds to a dinner party and threw this idea at him, and, and these guys were kind of the well-to-do elites of New York City at the time, industrialists, politicians, bankers, and uh, they were all in. And so they decided to name the club after their hunter heroes of the time, yeah. Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett. And they just kind of hit the ground running. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting guy economy, too, to think that these urban elites, and, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, so it's, it's interesting that there, there's a group of urban elites getting together and talking about conservation yeah. and, and wildlife issues. Or today, we don't see, we don't think in modern times that there's, there's this concern for the natural world coming out of our urban centers. Like no, that. that's that's a great 
great observation, but no, these, these were the, the New York power brokers. And um, they were all sportsmen. They were adventurers. They were explorers. Um, you know, they were the ones that were witness to the plight of wildlife, saw what irresponsible land use practices were, were going on. They didn't necessarily have an idea on how to fix it, but they, they brought experts in. That's how the club grew in mm-hmm. size. They kept recruiting people that, that had problem-solving skills. And believe it or not, the very first thing the club did was was save, protect, and expand Yellowstone Park. So here was the first, the nation's first national park. It wasn't only a park by name; nobody yeah. knew what it meant. Um, you know, it was being plundered, um, poaching, timber, mining. Uh, the geysers, the artifacts were being defaced. And you know, here's a group of sportsmen saying, "Well." Here's a place we can't hunt, but we're going to save it. Yeah, and so that was the that was their first dose of the process that they would follow, which was legislation. Yeah. So they drafted and passed the Yellowstone Protection Act, which at the time was the first time Congress had weighed in on any matter of wildlife conservation yeah. or natural resource conservation. So that was another first. Well, there was, there's other, and the funny part, and as I was reading about 125 years of history of your organization, it's like there, there, there are some monumental leg, pieces of legislation that were championed by the Boone and Crockett Club, Lacey Act, um, you're talking Pippin-Robertson Act. Uh, Federal Duck Stamp. Yeah, Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Yeah, the Timberland Reserve Bill. Yeah. Um, all kinds of fancy names, but the, the end result was the establishment of our National Forest, Federal Public Lands, National Wildlife Refuges, uh, the expert agencies to man these things, so U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Bureau of Land Management, U.S. Forest Service. These were all, you know, we say Boone and Crockett initiatives. I like to say sportsmen's initiatives. These guys were all avid hunters, and they saw, you know, value in specifically federal public lands. I know that's a hot topic right now and access to these lands. And their main goal, what they came together for, was recovering wildlife. Yeah. And and so here comes these hunters, and Roosevelt in particular, getting up and saying, well, the best way to save what's left of the wildlife that we have is to continue to hunt them. Yeah. Completely counterintuitive. I mean, the, the sales pitch of the century and they nominated sportsmen yeah. to be the the stewards and the vanguards of this because sportsmen benefited directly from the opportunity to hunt, the traditions to hunt, the connectivity uh, to the land and the wildlife. Yeah, and back then, I mean, it, it, and I've done some reading and and tried to dig up, like, in 1936, there's a National Wildlife, the first, I think the first ever National Wildlife Conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt brought a thousand groups together. You have, and you look there, and it's like garden clubs and things that you don't really think of when you think of con- when the modern hunter thinks of conservation. There are a lot of groups in there that were stakeholders that we don't think of as stakeholders within our hunt, like our North American model sure. right now. So it's funny to think of how we've shifted, how we still think of ourselves as stewards of conservation, but we've kind of shifted the definition of who's in our bubble, who's who's out without. Well, that's an important 
distinction to make, Ben. I mean, we, we live in the, you know, the hunter conservationist community, but truth be told, there's conservation going on lots of places, a lot of people involved in it that have nothing to do with hunting. Um, just concerned people, concerned groups, rotaries, local groups, local clubs, um, gardening, like I said, gardening clubs, bird watching clubs, yeah. you know, wetland restoration groups, you know, all those types of things. Yeah, like the local rod and gun club back then was a huge thing. Sure. Very influential. And Very it's good. almost, it's not completely gone now, but it certainly doesn't hold any influence on a national conservation level like it used no, to. No, and, and, and those local groups were important. Those were actually what started. I remember I said this was, Roosevelt founded this to be the first group to take on these matters on a national scale. These yeah. matters were being dealt with at a local level. Um, and, and spawned out of the same wildlife crisis that got the club going. Yeah, yeah. And it's, so it's important to know in, in the modern sense when we talk about what, what the Boone and Crockett Club is, I, I don't think everyone thinks this, but I think there's, you know, the casual observer will, like you said, think of big bucks and big bulls and sure. antlers and measuring and what's certified and what isn't and all those types of things. But when you dig into the history of conservation in this country, Boone and Crockett is right there. I mean, it's right there. It time. is, and there's, you know, we sometimes joke to ourselves here that the club's kind of written out of history because you'll you'll read accounts of Grinnell and Aldo Leopold and Pinchot and some of these people, and, and the club will never be mentioned. And truth be told, part of that was by design. Um, you know, Roosevelt was the walk softly, carry a big stick. And, and a lot of these early club members were, you know, eccentric, super influential people. And, and so they chose to kind of work quietly behind the scenes to get things done, especially when it came to legislation. So who was writing these bills was not public knowledge. Yeah. But it was sportsmen. And, yeah. it, and it was members of the club. And you mentioned the Lacey Act. John Lacey was a member. Uh, he passed you know, two significant bills that dropped the hammer on commercial market hunting. Um, Pittman-Robertson was another one. Um, establishing some of the national parks that we have, Glacier, we talked about Yellowstone, Glacier is another one, Denali is another one. Yeah. These these were hunters that said, you know, these these places need preserved. Yeah, and back then, because this was such, you know, these things were just growing, their foundations were becoming real, there's things like the Audubon Society and the New York Zoology Society. Like these things are, were connected to the Boone and Crockett Club. Where yeah. now we don't. Like again, the the point to make is we, we don't see that now. But yeah. Back then, there was the groundswell was a a bit had a bit more oh, breath. Direct connection. New York Zoological Society was run by William T. Hornaday, who was a club member. Yeah. Audubon Society was started by George Bird Grinnell, who helped found the club with Roosevelt. So there there was a network of these groups that were spun out of, you know, yeah. club members went off and, and did their thing, or this organization got going and there was a lot of synergy, and so there was cross-membership. Yeah. Campfire Club is another one that was closely associated with the club. Yeah. Do you see that today? That's, I didn't I didn't predict to talk about this when I was thinking about what we might talk about, but you see today we have, we talked about this in recent podcasts where it's just the facts that we have a lot of great conservation organizations in our world, whether it be a single species organization like Rocky Mountain Elk or or something more general like Boone and Crockett or TRCP or, or what, what have you. There, everybody wants members, everybody needs the attention, everybody wants to have an impact. That creates a competition. 
not intentionally, but it creates like some jockey. Yeah, around. there's there's a business reality to that's that. That's right. Yeah, that's um, a good way to put it. What I can tell you, and yes, if if there's cooperation or some connectivity. So back in 2000, um, this is one of the things that the, the club was noticing is we had no unity. We're all we're all kind of pulling in the same direction, but in, in some cases we're being counterproductive with each other. And so the club hosted a summit in Missoula and brought in all of these concerts, everybody that would come. And the result of that was the formation of the American Wildlife Conservation Partners, which is just a coalition of all these groups trying to unify a voice, and, and primarily in the legislative and political arena where we can come forward and say, well, yeah. these groups represent this many million sportsmen, voters, taxpayers, and we believe this. Yeah. And so there's a lot of unity there, and that's, you know, us, the critter groups, uh, NSSF, NRA. Yeah. Um, all the way down to, like, the Woodcock Association. I know yeah, the Rough Grouse Society, you know, all, all of those. Right now, it's I think it's like 45 different groups yeah. that are part of this, and and they share information. We share ideas. We share science. Uh, we do sign-on letters. Uh, Every time there's a turnover in the presidential administration, we produce a document called Wildlife for the 21st Century that outlines issues important to our community and proposed solutions, and that, that's been helpful in transitioning yeah. from one administration to another. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth there's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the sunshine state or any other destination on your fishing bucket list book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms I like them because it gives you hand-free calling meaning when you're working a bird up close you can have your gun on your knee finger on the trigger ready to roll and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, 
one of my main turkey hunting buddies. He loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I'll have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. So would you compare that, you know, as I think about, you know, the 30s and the turn of the century and the groundswell we talked about, do you feel like there's that same kind of, through the AWCP and, uh, and other groups, is it that same kind of feeling that, that we have that power and, and unity? Well, I wasn't around back then, so I could <laughs> <laughs> I can't speak for that. Yeah, maybe we, we may be, oh, like, grandizing that. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. But it just seemed like there was, when, when, when that first conference was held, and you read the accounts of it, you know, it certainly seems like the groundswell was strong. And I just, in the modern sense, I wonder where we are. Well, that's a, that's a great question, Ben. I think there was a time when, when it was much more connected. And then I think there was a, a, a sleepy period. Yeah. Um, I think after World War II, um, the, the fruits of all of this labor in conservation had paid its dividends. Wildlife was recovering, was recovered. Um, and, and there just wasn't as much, you know, activity, I guess, is, is a great way to put it. Um, a lot of the legislation was done. The funding mechanisms were done. The expert agencies were done. The science was being done. Um, you know, there was trained professionals. There was was careers and, and college degrees in, in all of the wildlife sciences. So all that stuff that the club and others put into motion was, was there. Yeah. It's like been invented. Um, I would say probably in the last 25 years that there, there's been a, a reawakening. You've seen some new groups come on board, like TRCP, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, yeah. to, to name a few. Um, you know, AWCP came along in 2000. Um, yeah, I don't think many people know about AWCP because it's such an inner industry it's thing. It's an inner, you know? inner thing. Um, but they, it is important. I mean, it's yeah. something where, like you said, I mean, it has a real impact on wildlife uh, hunting and conservation policies and direction. It does. And, and you talk about memberships. Well, there's there's a lot of, you know, I know people that belong to Boone and Crockett and they belong to TRCP and they belong to elk and they belong to wild sheep. It's important that those members that are supporting those organizations know that there is a mothership that all of yeah. these groups uh, are, you know, kind of convening with and sharing ideas and, and, you know, the whole strength in numbers type of a thing. So, yeah, I would I would say our community is more organized than probably ever before and better connected. Um, all of groups, Boone and Crockett included, is still working on their pet things, their specialized deals. Obviously, elk is elk and elk habitat and grouse and all that. Um, but there's a lot of crossover. Yeah. And there's a lot of crossover within the organizations as far as leadership. Um, you know, almost all of the CEOs or executive directors of AWCP are professional members of Boone and Crockett. We've got Boone and Crockett members on boards of other organizations. So, well, the reason, the kind of the reason we're here, Keith, is because it was uh, this last January, and we've had we've done this before this last January. But you and Shane Mahoney and I were having some booze in the Circle Bar there at mm. the Wild Sheep Show. Oh yeah, and so those that would probably be a more entertaining podcast 
those those would be alcohol fuel. That's good fly on the wall stuff. That's good fly on the wall stuff. But we always get into you know how Shane is. Shane is very very well spoken, very intelligent, but also um, he can be a little bit bombastic about like where we are and how desperate our situation is. And so it's fun. And he Shane and I have a good enough relationship, and as you do too, he lets me kind of poke him and make fun of him a little bit, sure, and, and chide him for some of his dramatic statements. But when we're talking about a lot of times we talk about like the public facing image of hunting and how, mm-hmm. how important that is. We talk about that ad nauseum on this show. And and so I'm reluctant to kind of approach it the same way. But there's a there's something about in the hunting community wanting to be fair to the animal, right? Mm-hmm. The concept of wanting to be fair to the animal. And we'll we'll go through kind of the modern constructs of that, but give us a from your perspective, how that started. Like I know, sure. I know that's, it's a long held idea. It's an idea that we've twisted and turned throughout, throughout time. But from your perspective, from a, even from a Boone and Crocker perspective, where did, where did this idea spring from? This idea sprang from, and, and again, it goes back to Roosevelt, Grinnell, kind of the, okay, what are we going to do? And, um, the, the concept of a hunting ethic, a, an ethos, if you will, or a standard, actually originated in Europe, um, but it originated on the, on the estates. And, and their wildlife was managed by the gamekeeper, and the, there was a code of, of ethical conduct that went on if you were going to pursue the game in, in that area. The public, for the most part, in Europe didn't hunt. They didn't have access to wildlife. Unfortunately, that ethical standard did not transfer over on the Mayflower. <laughs> um, you know, our, our, you know, the, the empire builders and the pioneers and the settlers that came here landed in this, this, you know, land of opportunity, this cornucopia of, of wildlife and abundance. There was the impression that wildlife was inexhaustible. Yeah. Manifest destiny did not do well for it ethics. Did not do well for, for ethics. So it was, it was a, a free for all. And, uh, so we don't have to go into that, but when Roosevelt came forth and, and started to pitch this idea of conservation, which really even at the time wasn't a word in the English language, um, and was nominating sportsmen to be the deliverers of this new system, this new relationship between man and natural resources. And the club went through all of these things that we just talked about, the legislation and the expert agencies. There, there, there was a piece that was missing, and that was this concept of an ethical approach and they called it fair chase Mm -hmm. and it's interesting that um it had many uses um the first use was conservation is a discipline of self-restraint and in its essence you know we're, we're gonna Use but use wisely. Save so we have some for tomorrow. Yeah, the sustainable use of a natural resource. Exactly. Right? Well, fair chase is 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 a standard or a discipline that is the same thing. It's self restraint. Mm-hmm. And so if your if your goal is recovering wildlife, yet you still want to hunt, and we still want to have public access to wildlife, hunting and fishing, um, this ethical code of conduct was, was really a, a foundational to conservation. They're, they're intertwined. 
So that was that was one piece of the puzzle. Is there a, is there a date and time where like Fair Chase first became, you know, yeah. was first written down or articulated, or is yeah, it just I over time? That's a great question. Um, the notes that we have, the very first meeting of the Boone and Crockett Club, they discussed the no ethical shit. standard. That's, that's yeah, this is eighteen eighty seven. Uh, it wasn't called Fair Chase then. That came about a few years later. Um, wow, I didn't know that. I yeah. didn't know it was that old. I mean, you're talking 125 year old, yeah, 130 year old idea. Yep. Because yeah. um, that's comparatively the North American model of conservation, where people think of this idea. You know, we're discussing kind of the tenets of it a bit, but mm-hmm. it wasn't formulated until the 80s. Uh, folks that listen to this podcast will know of our, our two part conversation with Shane Mahoney about it. Sure, and we got into that history. Um, but it's interesting how these things kind of well over time because I didn't you say it fair chase I didn't it's it's a little bit shocking to me that it, it was being it discussed all the far. way back far, yeah. all the way that far because well, it was such a dichotomy and people out west didn't give a shit they're out there shooting buffalo ad nauseum no it it was um but that was part of it if 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 you saw what, why wildlife was disappearing at an alarming rate and why we were losing species to extinction it was over harvest yeah. Um, and it wasn't all commercial. You know, commercial market hunting was certainly in play, but uh, unregulated sport hunting, uh, substance hunting, you know, no game laws, no real understanding of reproduction cycles and habitat quality and, and, and all of that. We didn't have the wildlife sciences back then. So, again, if, if, if restraint was going to need to be in order and, and Roosevelt knew that there needed to be order, and, and order meant game laws. Yeah. You know, we were going to have to come along with a set of rules that said, you know, hunting can't be a 24-7, 365. Yeah. There's going to be hunting seasons. There's going to be reasonable bag limits set for recovery. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, and, and you think about it, it's a natural progression, right? It's it, a natural progression. I wish it would have happened sooner, but as our country was, for, you know, People land here in the late 1400s, and it takes hundreds of years, decades for us to get to a point where we have a stable society post-Civil War. We can start to like, we and, and now we have refrigeration and railroads, and, and we're starting sure. to, to, it feels like a, the nation is becoming smaller in a lot of ways and can manage itself in that way. That's just a, the natural progression of, of our society. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and, and this country is marked with good things coming out of crisis. Yeah. You know, it just, hey, this becomes self-evident. We just can't continue this anymore. Yeah. So this ethic was also important to get sportsmen of that day to buy in to self-restraint and conservation. Yeah. Um, Because Roosevelt knew these game laws would be coming, and it wasn't an easy sell. I mean, these guys were used to, you know, shooting whatever they want, whenever they wanted. And then, you know, along with that, you know, we can talk about trophy and all that. That's connected to this as well. But once we had game laws established, something, and and our game laws initially were built off of fair chase principles. You know, these hunting methods are not sustainable. Uh, This style of harvest is not sustainable. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit, too, because I think I've got some things that I normally, you know, I've given some ethics panels, we talk about fair chase and some things that I try to posit about the future of it. But mm-hmm. in the past of it, we have some fair chase principles that are not connected to to game laws. Some that are suggested 
like models of behavior. They they extend beyond the law. Right. That's so, the ethical. That's the right. actually the personal. Yeah. Side so there's of this. yeah there's personal ethics, situ- situational ethics that go beyond the law. But I think to back up from that, that's one. That's the more the l- the less tangible conversation. Mm-hmm. Like what should you do in this situation, or uh, how should you build your personal construct of of how you act? Often when you're alone or with a small group of people in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. So we have we have that part. We'll get to that part. But one thing that I I may have missed in some of my earlier conversations and some of my assertions about the future of fair chase is how connected are the the origin of our game laws are to this to to the core code here. Yeah. Okay, well that's a good, that's a good question. Like how do you like how do you th- how do you see those two things in relation? Because I like I said I'm not taking it back that it goes back that far. So as as game laws kind of matriculate and become the model of which we how we fund and how we regulate hunting, how much do those fair chase ideas impact it? And there's no way to, to really know, but you can certainly can posit what. Yeah, what. and they're they're connected more than you think if you start thinking about it. So if if you put wildlife recovery as as the goal, and you know ethical standards and ethical treatment of a fair shake, uh, an honest effort, that that's fair chase. So that sits over on this side. Um, but the very first game laws were based on fair chase from the standpoint of using restraint. Yeah. So they were they were aimed at things like punt guns that mm-hmm. were just you know shooting entire flocks of ducks with one shot, and you know what they used to call crusting, which was chasing game mired in deep snow. Yeah. Um, jack lighting, you know, running running around the woods at night with lanterns to confuse the game and, and drive them to shooters, driving game into to lakes and ponds and shooting them from canoes. These are often these are often I think there's an important distinction. Like these are often market hunter. I mean, there are some some no, native ideas. Like there's a lot of native subsistence tribes that'll well, you know look push. At, we're not far here from Buffalo, John. Yeah, that's where exactly where I was going. Like <laughs> yeah. this is this is so these the, are deeper seated practices. Those those methods that were accustomed and customary at the time and appropriate at the time that were meant for massive harvest with least effort. Those were the things that our first game laws went after because that was the biggest swath of what was unsustainable. Yeah. Um, and, and really past that, then you have, you know, the hunting season and then the, yeah. the reasonable bag limits. It's, it's going to be, you know, six grouse a day or so many ducks a day or, you know, one deer a season or two deer a season. Yeah. And I imagine it was, you know, and I've, I've read about this and, and, and looked into this. It's like, how can we first stem the tide, stop this systemic problem? How do we make sure that we regulate out the systemic problem of killing game at nauseum, killing, you know, well, and raping, was, and, it, raping and pillaging, basically? Yeah, and it was a culture shift. Yeah. I mean, if you grew up in that day, I mean, we... We probably would have been. We're, we're named after Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett. Yeah. They were some of the biggest harvesters out there. Yeah. Um, but even they, uh, if you read some of the biographies, especially on Boone, uh, later in life, he realized that what he was doing was unsustainable and him opening up territories to, to settlement. He got to see, you know, this was game abundant land when I got here. And within 10 short years, anything within a 20 mile radius of the settlement was, yeah, you know, scorched earth. Yep. So 
they actually started to spawn some conservation values and, and realized that, that, you know, human capabilities can outpace the resource real yeah. quickly. Yeah, and I think, I think this is a good time just to bring in, like, the definition of fair chase as Boone and Crockett sees it. I'm sure you've got that memorized. <laughs> well, it's, 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 or at least close. Yeah, it's the ethical law. F- I got it in front of me. I oh, can okay. read it for you. <laughs> it's ethical, sportsmanlike, and lawful pursuit and taking of any free-ranging, wild, big-game animal in a manner that does not give the hunter that does not give the hunter an improper or unfair advantage over the game animals. And so that's the the Boone and Crockett official fair chase statement. Yep. And so. There's a lot to break down that, but I think it's it's nice to start at where it began, kind of the the crisis in which this this idea, this construct was born from, right? Mm-hmm. It was born to kind of stop or stem some really bad activity in relation to our wildlife and wild places. And then over time, you know, post nineteen thirty we got into in in post World War One, a time where the modern sport hunter began to rise from That's that's another important distinction, Ben. Um Fair chase, besides, let me just jump back a second here. So once we established game laws, what also happened is we were able to define poaching. Yeah. Okay, this yeah. is this is hunting over here, this is something else, and this is poaching. Before that, they were... <laughs> there was no... Yeah, it was... Uh, it was killing things, that's all it was. Yeah. So, and, and for... Fair chase is 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 the thing that that society entrusted sportsmen to recover wildlife with. Yeah, I mean it was it was our permission to speak, and and it's still to this day we start talking about modern relevance. It's a social license. Yeah, um, hunters, sportsmen, sportswomen holding themselves accountable to a higher standard that extends beyond the law. That should be pretty bulletproof. Yeah. And and it is if if we're applying it and, and talking about it like we are today. Yeah. So <clears throat> that that was important. Um, and the, yeah, there's this idea of, and I just spent some time in Berkeley, California, talking to vegans and animal rights folks. And there's this idea of thoughtlessness in the modern sense about hunters. There's sure. a, this idea of um, lust being involved, and and this idea that common sense isn't at the fore, you know. And so we. As hunters, this fair chase principle, as imperfect as it may be, at least when you explain it to, when you would give that fair chase statement from Moon and Crockett to someone who has no, who has this idea of hunters as barbaric, and and this is out there, and it's out oh, there, yeah. and it's very, you know it as, as well as I. Yeah, un- unfortunately yeah. it is, and and like it or not, some of that's our own doing. I mean, oh. what what paint what picture are we painting for folks? Yeah, big fat part of that is is, is I, yeah. this is self inflicted wounds. Yeah, if I had to pie chart it out, <laughs> I've never pie charted this out. It would be ridiculous. But you know, I would say urbanization, um, Bambi, or maybe Walt Disney, whoever you want to blame in that. Probably Bambi because it's fictional, um, and and hunters ourselves would be the three main culprits of of. You know the decline in hunting, maybe not the decline in hunter numbers as much, but the decline in the understanding of understanding. the pursuit. You know, yeah. um, and I don't know where I drank those. I think I would put urbanization and and hunters right beside each other and as the culprits for this misunderstanding. Well, there, there's no. I mean, you guys are in the business. How many 
people know where their food comes from. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's a lot, that's lost on our society. It comes yeah. from the grocery store. And that's you know? like a cultural, and, like, so there's, so we're fighting, I think we're, we're swimming upstream on the cultural shift, sure. but we're certainly not helping ourselves. Like we're, we're throwing paddles out of the boat as we're trying to, you know, paddle upstream. Um, we're certainly fighting against the tide of, of time. Uh, but we're not we're not doing ourselves any favors. Well, and I I would assume I wasn't there at your your Berkeley thing, but I would imagine that you know you're pretty well versed in this. By the time they were done, they probably went, eh, you know, I get that. I maybe yeah. I didn't think of it that way. And you, you start applying fair chase. I'm a firm believer that that society at large, even animal rights and anti hunting people, there's something to be learned from fair chase for sure. For sure, you know this is this is not a free for all. Uh, this is not thrill killing. This is actually part of a bigger picture, and hopefully, we made that connection. How it was was foundational to conservation. Yeah, which, I like that. I'm, I'm glad we got to that. Um, I needed to have that right now, and but I think you know to the point of like the Berkeley folks. One of the best kind of back and forth I had during that time was with Robert C. Jones, and we were we were just simply talking about. You know, what's the code? And he brought up trophy hunting. So are you willing to say that's, you know, trophy hunting, which here's an example of trophy hunting, a guy that cuts the head off a deer and leaves the body and takes the head home. I'm like, listen, that's not, that's not a, that's an asshole. Yeah, and he's, that's, that's that person, perception. as often illegal that in, in almost, in most cases, that's an illegal act, Right. But if it if it happens to be legal wherever that person is, that person's an asshole. If if we're talking about campers and we begin to talk about them by saying, you know, campers, all they do is litter, like they just take garbage bags and dump them into wild places. Like that's not a camper. That's a one an asshole camper. Yeah. You know. So my my point to him was like it's it's very disingenuous to to do that and. I think I know the other thing I learned is it's disingenuous to do that to other groups. If I say like factory farming as a monolith sure. is not the way to speak about the big ag. Those, that's a great connection, a great antidote to that. Here, here's another one um, that's actually it's factual as well. And we talked about records and trophies. Trophies, believe it or not, were an instrumental part of Roosevelt's plan and the club's plan to enlist sportsmen into the conservation movement. And the best way I can explain that is the the club through its scoring system and its records books and elevating the notion of trophy got people more interested in selective harvest. Yeah, um, we talked about fair chase and game laws when hunting was was allowed again. What did we hunt? Males, yeah. rooster pheasants, drake mallards, buck deer, bull elk. Again, recovery. This was all built on sustainable. If you're going to remove an animal from a population, mm -hmm. the best one that's not going to be missed is a mature animal that's already genetically contributed to herd health. So this idea of a trophy fit the self-restraint deal. It fit the sportsman deal. It's, it fit the, the, the ego part of, well, you know, I'm, I'm skilled woodsman. I, yeah. can, I can outsmart the wisest. And that meant the biggest and the best and the oldest and the most mature, yeah. air quote, a trophy. Yeah. This is, this is one of those ideas where it looks so different inside hunting than it does outside hunting. Yep. And we have not done a great job. No, we've not done a great job. That, 
with that idea. Of, and, you know, like you said, there are some, you know, a-holes out there that have let trophy define hunting, yeah. not only for them, but for all of us. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's that's cult- not good. That, it's cultural. That, yeah, that needs reeled back in. It's cultural in hunting. I had a very prominent outdoor TV personality tell me some a couple of years ago in camp that nobody would watch it unless something big died, and that was. And this is a person, a leading person in the industry, who has kind of defined, helped define some of our culture. And he's like, well, if if you know, if we don't have a big thing die at the end of the show, then nobody will watch. And I'm like, well. I mean, if that's the case, what's that say about our yeah. culture? You well, know? that was that was the case before television, uh, when you know it was hunting DVDs. You know, how many kills can you get on one DVD? I remember that, those days. Yeah, I used to love it, man. Yeah, that's 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 what sold. Not it, to call out Stan Potts, but I used to love watching old Stan Potts shoot big deer. Yeah, and so that transferred that business model, if you will. How many kills can we get on one DVD? That transferred over to television, mm-hmm. like right now, uh-huh. and still, still, and now. still, it's 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 softened up some, um, but it's still that's what a lot of guys are tuning in for. Absolutely, um, yeah. I think that's generational. It maybe, is maybe, gener- maybe it's 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 in maybe some that, way generational. That tide's turning. I've, I've uh-huh. even I'm seeing enough and I'm hearing enough where people are going, I just can't watch that stuff anymore. Oh, and, I, and, I rarely run into anybody that's my age or anywhere near my age that, that wants to talk about it like that. And working for media, they're not, the, not to toot our own horn or, or held up Steve Rennell anymore. He's already been held up. But most people are like, I love media. I don't watch any other hunting shows. I love media. That's sure. the refrain I hear. Well, and I, I hear, hear, you know, I love Shockey's Uncharted. Yes. You know, yes. And, and the messages and the thing, the way he goes about it and, and his his ambassadorship for hunting. and Yeah, because he, he's tugging at the different, there's just this different adventure ethos that we all kind of have, sure. whether we know we have it or not. Um, yeah, so I think with any trend, much like the trophy trend in our culture, there's pushback to it. And so, yeah. so the modern, the more modern pushback, and I can say I've seen it. I mean, we did a, I was at Peterson's Hunting in 2011 when we did a meat eater cover that got everybody all hackled oh, up. Oh, yeah, I remember that. <clears throat> but that that was the idea that, that back then this was happening, and here we are eight, eight some years later, and it's still... Put, you know, moving forward. When we when Boone and Crockett was doing, we were doing our television show. I mean, there was there was network guidelines: don't show any meat being cut up or blood yeah. or anything being packed out. I'm going. Are you kidding? <laughs> the point of yeah, what's the point of this? So you know, that's obviously loosened up, and you know, the the, the utilization is is more prevalent now, which yeah. we've always known is the case, but you couldn't show it on TV. And so when you guys did, I worked when I was at Yeti. We worked a little bit on the Hunt Fair Chase, which is a which the is a initiative, program initiative yeah. that you guys launched uh, a couple years ago. Now yeah, it was two, two years two ago, years ago, twenty seventeen. Um, and in launching that, we'll get to what kind of what that is. But in launching that, I think what was clear is that at least clear for me, and even talking publicly about it, it's like what's in there's a generational shift at least. And my generation, I think, is probably the first generation in hunting to have this. Mm-hmm. Where I can I can legitimately say, I'm a better public communicator than my dad because my dad was never a public communicator, and now anybody with a phone is is a public communicator. So and we're all movie producers. Yeah. We're all, you know, po- I mean, we're in the we're in the communications age, so yeah. everybody has got you know access to this, their own social media stuff. 
Yeah, it's it's a sea change in how people act. It's just like we're all in this world where we're communicating with how many ever people we can get a hold of sure. about usually the best parts of our life. And so I just think my generation, I'm 33, I think my generation is the first hunting generation, however you'll put me in. I think I'm at the very tail end of the millennial generation, so I'll take whatever flack okay. I get for that. But I think that this generation or this space and time is the kind of the first generation to feel the pressure, to understand the value well, system. and grew up with it. And grew up with it. Sure. And is trained in it. And whether you want, whether you say trained or not, like you, you have to be if you want to, you know, po- want to be popular or whatever. My dad's generation, it was Outdoor Life and Field and Stream That's magazine. Right. That was it. When I was growing up, it was those three magazines and maybe every third Sunday American Sportsman. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. I mean, I grew up on, I, when I first got in the industry, ESPN had hunting shows. Sure. And I remember writing a blog on, for AmericanHunter.org uh, at the NRA about ESPN kicking out hunting. And I remember as a kid, that's what we watched on Sunday. You sure. Know, that's what we watched. I've got, I've got Sports Illustrated magazines in our archives that had yeah. like our big game awards in it. They yeah. talked about it's the hilarious. Trophies. I mean, I talked that big, was Sports Illustrated. We buy podcast with Colonel Tom Kelly recently, and he was talking about writing for Sports Illustrated in the fifties, and and it, it just you know how quickly that all changed for us, and how insular we became as a community. I think well, based on those things, I've talked with Randy Newberg about this a couple of different times, where what you read back then romanticized hunting it was about discovery it was about exploration it was about camaraderie it wasn't about tactics and techniques and Mm -hmm. and stuff like that and so that you know those are the manly sports you know there was men's magazines back then that that, that ran hunting and fishing but don't you think that that i in looking at the history and like following the timeline i feel like that came out of the both world wars people came back from these world wars looking for not not looking for tactics to learn how to kill an elk they came back looking for solitude and connectivity yeah connectivity something to believe in something to mark your calendar look forward to and so during those decades our culture became that because that's what would get people into hunting and that's kind of what that conversation was that's where the the pennsylvania hunting deer hunting camp emerged from and that you know we sound like a bunch of old guys here talking about history but (laughs) You know, after World War II, that was the greatest influx of sportsmen going into the field that was. or the returning GIs. Yeah. And and about that time is when our industry kind of kicked off. Yeah. You know, more and more manufacturers getting in. Shot show emerged not that long afterward. Um, you know, big trade shows. And, you know, now if there's one tree stand, there's 20. And if there's one duck call, there's 50, you know. And that that didn't happen. You know, there was some companies involved, but not many. Now it's, you know, it's a big business. It's a big industry. We're supporting, you know, a lot of passionate sportsmen. That's funny. Yeah, it's funny how you say that. I think now, looking back at the old uh, Peterson's hunting in the 70s, or even going back into field and stream and outdoor life and it wasn't like you said it wasn't call companies it was like skull it was you know it was making these up it is you know it was flannel hats and the non, chainsaws non, non, we call them non-endemics but it started as a very non-endemic idea in the marketing sure, sense you know brill cream and shaving and you the know man, the manly strike, man I mean, lucky strike cigarettes and you know all, all that kind of stuff manly um, man yeah, yeah well, and it's it's turned on its head now to where it's it's very most of our communications are very insular very you know very this vertical. is how to yep. get better at this thing um which is it's just it's very interesting 
how we've kind of came through that time. Um, then for me to, like you say, talk about history, for me to understand where we are today, you have to kind of understand where we've been and that, that I'm not, I don't think negatively about the late 80s, early 90s, and into the early 2000s, but I think that was the real the real time where that, that commoditization trophy hunting idea became, it, it stuck. There, there a lot of tipping points happen yeah. in, in, in that time frame. And the good news is, I, th- I think there's a sea change. Mm-hmm. We're talking about this now. Mm-hmm. I mean, can can you imagine a podcast on Fair Chase ten, fifteen no. years ago? No. I mean, my dad. My I said this in in another podcast. But I don't, my dad never. I don't think ever said this to me explicitly, but I think it part of his generation was let's just not talk about it outside of what we do. If we just don't talk about hunting outside of just hunters, then antis won't have anything to attack us for. I, that was something that that was a refrain I heard a lot coming yeah. into the industry. You know, um, well, you start you talk about dads. My dad was he was a bird hunter. He loved to hunt pheasants and rabbits. That's what we grew up in a farm in Ohio. I don't think he ever knew or heard of the term fair chase, mm-hmm. but to him there was things. This is how we did things. You know, so he showed me this is how we treat the land. This is how we ask the landowner. This is how we. You shoot a pheasant, you you look for it, you exhaust everything looking for it, we eat everything <laughs> we take, we don't waste anything. Yeah. So he was he was laying down the rules of the road how hunters hunt. Yeah. He didn't call it fair chase, but it's a code of conduct. Yeah. Yeah. It's a code of conduct. And I think we talk about Leopold all the time, Aldo, um, he, that's, I mean, his ethic was that way. And I think the way I started, when we start talking about ethics in public and I, I give talks to whomever wants to talk about it, private or public even, there's the idea that hunting is very, there's no one else watching. Like it's very, very internal in that way. And um, there's, a, like, there's a quote from, I always bring this quote up, probably people heard this a lot, but a peculiar value virtue in wildlife ethics is that the hunter has no gallery to applaud or disapprove of his conduct whatever his acts they are dictated by his own conscience rather than by a mob of onlookers it is difficult to exaggerate the importance of this fact Mm -hmm. and that's aldo and so that's true until social media yeah i was just gonna say that and that's the way it's been hunting is you know primarily done alone yeah, you might be in camp with family and friends, but it's it it's you out there. You're making you make the call. There's no referees. You you're you're the one that's got to live with your decisions. Um, but yeah, boom, here comes social media. Yeah, because I think and, that's and, you know, yeah. hunting used to be I don't want to say contained in a, in a negative way, but it used to be contained to our conventions, our magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I used to have a photo album and, you know, this is what I got this year and you take it to a show and you'd show people and now, you know, our photo albums, our videos, all our stuff is, you know, in the airwaves. It's being pu- pumped out. Yeah. Uh, that's, and that's funny how you can see, like, like I said, the late eighties, early nineties, kind of the, how our culture changed. And then you can then see like when social media really became impactful, how our culture has changed, how our films have changed, how our magazines have changed, how our communications have changed. You can erase the medium, podcasts, magazines, whatever. There are certainly still magazines that kind of still are still doing it the same way they did it 15 years ago and very successfully. That's, you know, that's great. 
but there's also a lot of new things that are born of, you know, we just had Tyler Sharp from Modern Huntsman on. This podcast is probably one of the things you could put in that bucket, but there's there's just a a different way to think about it now that, that we have this social media way to communicate. Well, as, as much as we want to blame social media for some of the jackpot we found ourselves in, I'm I'm come a little more philosophical about it and said social media is really what got a lot of us paying attention. Damn straight. And, 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 and now there's 12 million people that can influence someone else about hunting. And there's a lot of people that are realizing, some people aren't, but a lot of people are realizing that's pretty important. Sure. That's an important thing so to our, think of. You know, you mentioned the, the Hunt Right campaign. That was purely driven to point out the fact that you know, our image is tarnished, and we've got to be better ambassadors for our sport. Yeah. And and Fair Chase is a great rallying point for that. Yeah. And and people sucked that up. There there was, you know, not everybody. There's, you know, hunt how you want to hunt and all that kind of stuff movement. But for the, for the most part, the timing was right for that, and it was extremely well received. We were, we were pleased with the response that we got, and it spawned. You know, you talk about Tyler and Modern Huntsman. Uh, he approached uh, me and and Simon Roosevelt to uh, contribute to his latest issue and talk about yeah. ethics and fair chase. And so we submitted some articles. Heck, I can count on one hand ten years ago anybody even say, "Hey, come on, come, come on and talk, yeah, come on and talk about this, or give us some history or some perspective, or you know." just have a dialogue about this you know and it wasn't that it was taboo or anything it just wasn't on anybody's yeah, radar it wasn't screen. center point in the culture you know and i think i feel i often you know people listen to this show for hours a week i often i don't want to beat people over the head with these heavy ideas i don't want to make everything some larger than it has to be decision i don't hunting should be fun it should be enjoyable that's if it wasn't that we wouldn't do it if it was some robotic you know very fraught decision making process that wasn't fun it, less people certainly would do it and and we would be sure. less passionate about it but at the same time connecting like these ideas of you do need to be thoughtful you do need to understand there's a code of conduct and this is this is not just a modern thing this is going on for 125 130 years well, and we're still solving those same problems. Sure. Sustainability being being the main thing there. Well, I mean, there's there's a societal code in you know everything. Uh, I was talking about this the other day. I mean, you, I mean, simple things that you're growing up with. You know, respect women, hold the door open for them, <laughs> put the toilet seat down. If, yeah. you, if you if you borrow something, return it in good condition as if it was your own. Uh, respect the flag, honor our service men and women. Fair Chase is right in there with those same type of principles. Yeah, yeah. Um, you ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to Land.com today to turn one day 
into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I think, well, yeah, I think one, well, I think we've made that, we made that point. I think to, to shift. And when, yeah. when I've talked on this podcast and then, you know, publicly about an idea of like, okay, now fair chase. We agree it's valuable. We agree it has this modicum of success within our culture for over a century. What in the future, how, two things. One, how can it be adapted? And two, how mm-hmm. can it, how can fair chase adapt to defend against some of the modern mindsets of what hunting is or what hunting has become? Sure. So there's the questions that I always ask myself. And when I come to fair chase, I ask myself, and I think a lot of people in society, because I think society is just asking us a simple question. They're asking us, is hunting good for all of us? Because we, we all most, I would say 99.9999% of people value animals. They value their being there. They value seeing them. They value interacting with them. They value their presence, unlike other continents that don't have that same shared value system. We generally do. So we have that. So now, what can? How can Fair Chase kind of prop up that idea going forward? Because it's, it, I feel like it's going to have to adapt in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, that, that's a good question, Ben. I, I mean, we already talked about Fair Chase being that adding more legitimacy to hunting. It's that social license. But I think the conversation that needs to take place even ahead of that is that idea that hunting is conservation, to steal a quote from our friends over at Elk. It is an irreplaceable mechanism for conservation. It's, it's, it's part of... Conservation is the longest continual, continuous movement in American history. Yeah. And hunting has been shoulder to shoulder with that since day one. We need to be able to communicate that in itself more. And then with that, okay, by the way, it is, does have purpose. It is being conducted ethically. There is respect given to the game. The meat, the animals are utilized. That just kind of sells it even further. Yeah. I don't, I'm not necessarily convinced that fair chase being the tip of the spear, people need to understand ecological realities and, and, yeah. and where hunting's role does yeah. fit. Yeah. Part of that is, you know, you t- we talked about trophy hunting and that negative stereotype. You know, we've got to get away from the, the, the snap headline judgment that hunters are blood sport thugs with, you know, no moral code and, and are just thrill killing. Bear Chase can certainly be part of that conversation, but, you know, we, we've got, a, I think, too many people that don't 
understand the history of conservation. Yeah. Um, they're confused between preservation and conservation. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's so much in that. I mean, it's so inter- there's so much to unpack. Yeah, um, there is. One of the things I think to unpack within within that conversation is as time goes on and there's less hunters, let's say we stabilize at 12 million and we stay there. I, I don't, I can't see a time where we're like, oh, there's 20 million, we just grew 8 million. I don't know just because of that urbanization and kind of the change in our culture. I just don't know the future, but I, I would be skeptical if someone argued to me that they thought they could double hunting in the next 50 years. I would say, boy, I, I'm not seeing that. Certainly the the current data doesn't back that up. You'd have to really come at me hard with that one. Yeah. So in that world where we know it's kind of has to, it's going to either stabilize or continue to to decline. How do we present the North American model of wildlife conservation and and the North American model of how we pay for shit? <laughs> I wish it could. <laughs> yeah. That'd be a good. That might get people thinking about it. Um, how do we present that as like a foundational thing that has lasted for all this time, hundreds, a hundred years at this point almost? How do we present that as it's it's valuable, right? It's the basis of what we do. It certainly needs to be taken that model, taken and adapted in other ways in wildlife management and sure. outdoor recreation. We should be able to take this really successful model and plop it into outdoor recreation. And be like, we need you to come to the table here. We need you to be doing similar things to this. Um, I think that has to happen, but that makes our stake in the game less because we would have to bring in more people to pay for more things. So I think that's in the future. I think that has to happen, whether it's a backpack tax or something like that. It's got to happen, but it's going to change the dynamic. I've heard that argument. I'm kind of still not completely sold on that. That's I've heard, you know, let's start taxing, you know, boat paddles and backpacks and mountain bikes and Oh, wait, we can't do that because all of a sudden there's other other stakeholders in the game and they're going to dilute our say. And I think one of our biggest problems in general is is we've isolated ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, there is conservation work going on outside of hunting and fishing. And there are groups that are open-minded that, that have a, a better understanding and, and quite possibly have a an understanding of the history of conservation and know that hunting is not this you know this big negative thing out there um so i i think if we move to a point where we're not so us against them or there has to be an enemy and 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 reach across the aisle to use a political cliche and and you know start working with some of these other groups i mean they yeah, that's ha- that's happening. That's some. that's one. I think that that's that is happening. I think it, it's important for it to continue. Uh, another thing we talk about the North American model and the non you know non commercial use. I I think if if wild game meat was a more available, yeah, in in restaurants, people would go. Hmm. Yeah, I mean we've. <laughs> How how funny we're, is it? We're kind of touching into your guys' world here a little well, bit. But, but how funny is it that, you know, captive, the captive servant, I often get texts from people, and people often, I work for Meat Eater now, people often want to take me out to a restaurant where they serve venison, often. I mean, this is somebody, I meet somebody new, and they're like, hey, yeah, this restaurant, they got he eats wild game, so venison yeah. steak, he's going to love it. I'm like, yeah, that's great, but that's a captive servant, bro. Like that... Yeah. That is exactly the thing that I'm not into. 
And so we've created this world where we have this abundant resource of wild game. And do we want to bring back some sort of market for it? That's a very complicated concept. Sure. But we've also created, by creating this idea of ideology around like eating wild things, we've created this captive, we've, we've then forced our society to like to get approval to put shit behind a fence to feed to people as a facsimile for the thing that we're, yeah, that we're celebrating. It's a slippery slope. I just, when I'm eating, like, you know, somebody says, here's your venison steak and I'm at a restaurant and other people are like, wow, you know, they'll tell their friends, I went out last night and had the best uh, rabbit stew I've ever had or I've had the best, you know, deer steak I've ever had. I'm like, do you understand that's probably from New Zealand? It's probably a red deer. I've been to those places. I've seen what they do to those animals. It's It's akin to cattle. And so, if hunting is going to promote this urban idea of eating particularly venison, it's almost, a ca- it's like, it's so counterintuitive and counterproductive to, to, to what we're promoting that I, I find it like, I, I'm not sure what to do with it. I'm not sure to be like, people don't come to this restaurant because <laughs> these are, these are deer of whatever kind, you know, and there's been many times where I've eaten an elk steak at a restaurant and thought, this is not an elk. Right. There's no elk I've seen that's this size unless it was a, you know, unless it was a two-year-old or a fawn. This is probably a red deer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that's a whole nother can that's, of worms. That is a can of worms, but, I mean, we're still seeing, you know, wild-caught salmon as opposed to farm-raised. I mean, there's there's still some hope that yeah. that we can draw that connection to wild, organic, hormone-free, et cetera. Yeah, all those things. So I want to close out by, there's a, I said this in a recent conversation um, that was sponsored by BHA. And there was a, I think there was a gentleman from Boone and Crockett in the audience. And so I thought he's going to yell me down <laughs> for saying what I'm about to say. <laughs> and I say it knowing that it's against a lot of, a lot of what we normally think. But here's what I've been thinking of lately. I'd be interested in what you, I don't think we've ever talked about this. So the idea of fair chase, you know, I asked the question of fair to what, right? Fair to me or fair to the animal? I think a lot of these people that don't understand hunting or think it's oxymoronic in its nature are wondering, you know, what fair chase is really denoting. Is it denoting what we talked about, like a, a code of conduct among hunters, or is it, a, is it more about the interaction between the animal and the hunter or the animal and the human is it doing both those things at the same time or is it constructed to just manage the human activity and in a relationship of how we standardize each other right so so what so i asked that question like is it is it animal human or is it human to human and what's that really mean so from that i think okay if we were to say like what what could fair chase be next what's the next thing it could help us with and I think what it could help us with is our interaction with animals specifically and the oxymoronic nature of it's not fair chase to shoot a deer in hip deep snow where it can't move, but it may be more ethical and more efficient if you're just talking efficacy only to shoot that deer when it can't move, right? So it may seem unfair to us, but if you would ask the deer, it would be like, I don't, you know, I don't want you to kill me probably. But I don't want to suffer either. So if you think it's unfair, but it's going to kill me quicker, I'd much rather you have that. So I would just say the question I pose is like, is, is fair chase, the future fair chase, does it shift only to 
regulate the action prior to the killing, right? Only regulate our hunting and not our killing. Like how the act of hunting, how whether we shoot from car, whether we hunt from cars, where we go hunting, how we hunt. But at the moment of killing the animal, we choose the most efficient way that we can we can surmise based on the situation. There's again a lot to unpack in that, but that's what I've been thinking of lately. Is that the next step of fair chase? Does that solve some of the conundrums that come from animal versus human and those conducts that we we kind of look that, at? That is a lot to unpack. And you're going to leave me with that? See ya. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> See ya, Keith. No, but that's uh, I'm not going to leave you with. I don't. We'll talk it through. But I mean, it's, well, it's, let me start by because we obviously we spent a lot of time thinking about this and have a historical context. Best way I can start to answer that question, and I don't know if I can get all the way through it, is fair in our English language has many, many meanings. Sure. Fair ball, fair play, fair skin. And fair, just taken at face value, implies fair, equal. The fair and fair chase is actually derived from the alternative definition of fair, which means genuine, legitimate, appropriate in the circumstance. Yeah. So if, if you if you look at fair chase from that standpoint, hunting is not fair. Mm-hmm. This is not equal. You know, we have technology, we've got a reasoning and thinking brain, they've got their senses and survivability. There's there's some pl- level playing fields. There's other level playing fields. So if you if you pull back and say, well, fair chase is about a genuine, appropriate approach, mm-hmm. um, that might help answer part of that question. I, for think, you. I think that definitely does. I think that definitely because, like I said, I think we maybe it helps me if we just like start removing some of like the actual end game conduct regulations if it were within fair chase to say well don't kill it this way because that's not fair like "Mm, let's remove that yeah yeah that's that's that you're you're gonna run around a circle in and back of the same yeah and that's where personal situational ethics should come in right like i think fair chase could it has a has and again i'm thinking through this uh, we're all thinking through it because there's no answer to it but like fair chase has its between you and i fair chase works between me and the animal fair chase doesn't work to me like there's that's where my situational and personal ethics come in, and then so so I guess where maybe we could get to and it would feel good was is how do your how does fair chase and personal situational ethics all kind of mix up in well, the gumbo? Think about it this way, Ben. There's also fair to yourself. Yeah, hmm. and you know I look at an honest effort. Um, my most memorable hunts have been you know tough hunts. Sometimes I was successful, sometimes I wasn't. But in, in, you know, choosing to pass, yeah. you know, or that's, you know, I don't feel comfortable with that shot. That's a risky shot. And I've wounded an animal before. I've lost them before. I've, you know, had the sleepless night and trying to pick up a blood trail the next day over a poor decision. Yeah. Don't want to relive that again. I think most sportsmen have that core little, call it the little bird inside or whatever that says, "Eh," you know. Almost every hunter I've ever met has that. Yeah, and so I start looking at at fair to myself 
and and saying, well, this this is how I suit up. This is how I'm going to approach it, and and I'm going to use this ethos, this code to help guide my decisions uh, in the field. Is it is it? Are you applying a level of fairness to the animal? Yeah, some people look at it that way. I, I think it has more to do with me personally. Yeah. I, I I don't want to relive a bad experience. I don't want to see an animal suffer because of a poor choice I made. I want to come away with a memorable experience, win, lose, or draw. I don't want to cheat. I don't want to have things uh, you know canned or staged. I want a genuine experience. So that's how I start internalizing yeah. fair and making it personal to me. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And then, and I get that's where I get to. It's like that articulation of it is great. I think if you, you're it's just like it's about. I me. hope you're recording that because I don't remember what I said. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't, what did I say? It's like that <laughs> Will Ferrell thing. Where he says, huh? I blacked out. I blacked out. Um, but I yeah, I hope we're recording all this. Um, that's where. That's where. I, 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 I stay with that idea all the way to the, to the moment that I'm in front of that animal. I've got myself to a place where I have a code of conduct that I feel is fair to everybody, right? And I'm following that to a T. And then when I get to that animal, my my re- most recent feeling is that it should then shift to the animal's importance at the time where I've made the decision that it's time to do the killing. You know, now I've selected the animal based on my ethical know, in the constructs of the law, plus my own ethical ideas of what animals should be harvested or killed, uh, selected from the group. I've done that work. I've done all the adventure work to get to where that animal lives. I've studied its habits. I've done. I've done all the work in the way that I feel is is proper. What you're saying is you yeah. earned it. Yeah, you earned it. Right. It's that feeling of you sit down beside that dead animal. You're like, oh, this was. This feels right. There's that no was, way. That was a hunt. Yeah, there's no way. We've tried to articulate it by saying purity score, but people get that all twisted up. So yeah. we don't do that anymore. But it's like when you, you know it, you sit down beside that animal, you know it. Like there's, it's, it's infallible. It either is right or it wasn't right. And so for me, I've started to think of, I don't, I don't necessarily do this when I'm hunting. It would make hunting way, way boring and heavier than I want it to be. But at the time, I get to the point where I'm going to kill that that animal is close, either close enough or I know I can get close enough, then I start to think about just how cleanly can this go down, you know? So now I've done all the personal work to get myself to the situation mm-hmm. where where I have an opportunity to kill an animal. Now it's about the animal. It's not about me anymore. It's not about any ego. It's not. It's just about dispatching this thing as, as cleanly as possible because that will help fulfill the first part which was those personal fair chase ethics that, that I that contract you made with yourself. I made a contract with myself. Well, it would be a failure of that contract if if then there's a big bucket eighty yards. It's a failure of the contract if I'm like he's eighty yards. I'll never get another shot. Let me just whack an arrow out there, knowing that I've got a twenty percent chance of killing it. If I get forty yards closer, I've got an eighty percent chance of killing right. it. You know, and so that's how I started to look at it. Now, how fair chase fits into that. I, still working on it, but you know, yeah, I think it, it does. I mean, you you just said it. You're you're weighing the margin of error. Yeah, and that's you know, if it's a guiding principle, that's that's part of it. Yeah, you know, you you 
like you said, you've done all the adventure and preparation to get to that point. Um, that's part of fair chase. That's that's driving you to do that. You know, you got out and you shot your bow every night. And you got you know all your equipment tuned, and you knew where your maximum effective range was going to be, and that's all part of the equation. Yeah, and then you're there by yourself, or with just one or buddy or a person, and you have to make this call about ending the life of something, and that's fucking you know like that's a. That's yeah. a big deal, and it should be a big deal. So I think, you know, rewind all that back. So it's like, what is Fair Chase? To me, it's like the, the what it's going to mean in the future, I think, is just, just it'll just become, as, it all, as what it already is, an articulation to both inside our community, but also without, outside of our community, of all this stuff we're talking about, of this whole dance of... Well, look, look at it this way. Say you chose not to take that shot and you came back to camp and, you know, replayed that that encounter for your buddies back at camp. Would you feel good about that decision and, and telling that story and going, you know, hey, I got close. It was a buck I was after. It just wasn't right. And I just, I said, no, nah, I, I let him walk. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fulfilling. Yeah. Here's a story like somebody, people probably beat me up for this, but this is something I think a lot of people have either been through or can understand. I was, this is probably you know, 11 years ago. And I was, I had, this is my second baited bear hunt. And I was in Quebec at a, at a place with my, with my dad, as a matter of fact. And I, I had seen very few black bears in my life. And black bears are historically possible to judge, hard to judge in a lot of ways. So when you go on a baited hunt, they'll say, if it's big as the barrel, Go mm-hmm. for it. And and Quebec, this place where we were in Quebec, is, there's not, there's, you know, a 200-pound bear is, is a big bear, big bear. Un, unlike a lot of places. And so I'm sitting in the box blind fighting mosquitoes, and this bear comes in, grabs grabs a piece of meat, rotten meat, runs off. I'm like, mm, I think that was big, and that bear is big enough. He comes back. I'm going to kill him. It was like a flash decision to think that. So like if he does that again, I'm going to have to get a quick shot off. Well, this bear comes back in, he gets behind the barrel and puts his head around. And I think, oh, that's, you know, that's a big enough bear. And he then finally puts his front shoulder around. I'm 50 yards from the bait, so it's an easy shot. Rifle, boom. He drops. Half his body's behind the barrel, half is in front. I go walking up, and this bit's, it's, you know, a one-year-old bear. I mean, it might as well have been, I mean, the thing was four, three feet long. And I just remember standing there going, looking over this thing. I'm, you know... 22, 23, 24 at the time, somewhere in there. I remember thinking, very honestly, thinking maybe I'll bury it. Because I was like the shame, feeling the shame of killing this tiny little bear, feeling the shame. I'm still going to eat it. I'm still going to do all the things I would do if it was a big bear. But like feeling the cultural shame of doing that, I stood there for a minute and thought about burying it. I didn't, but I thought it hard. I was looking around like, where might I? stuff this thing so I can keep hunting and, and not have the shame of this thing. And so I didn't do that. I called the outfitter. He came, picked me up and they spoke French. So I'm sure they were like, oh, look at this guy. <laughs> this guy. I didn't understand. There was another veteran bear hunter in camp who had just showing pictures all week of all these giant bears he had killed. And so we w- went to pick him up in the dark. I remember him coming out of the stand and his face, you could almost see his face. It was so white in the darkness. And he came up and he had shot a bear like the same size as my bear. And he did the same thing I did. He just, you know, and this is a guy that was all week in camp, just I'm a big bear hunter, I'm mm-hmm. the bear hunting guy. 
and he did the same thing I did. And so in some weird way, I felt good about it. Like, well, thank God someone else did it. I don't feel so bad. So all that shit, I think, is just, oh, I say all that to say that that happens. Like, there is a sure. standard that you're trying to play by. There's there, rules there and a standard. And, and, you know, you mentioned, you know, another fit for Fair Chase. Fair Chase is also, you don't have to edit any of your story. Yeah. I mean, th- think about that when you telling your story to, you know, buddies at camp or, you know, whatever, how was your hunting season? Well, I left out the part about, you know, my yeah. first shot hit him here and the second shot hit him there. My fourth shot hit him there because he was running at 400 yards. Fairchase spares you from having to edit your story. And it also gives you the street cred. If you if people, if somebody's known me and hung with me for 10 years and I come back with a story about killing a tiny bear, shooting an elk in the guts or something, they're like, yeah, we know... We know the standard that this person has, and sure. we know that that's, this is a fluke and not not because there wasn't preparation or not because there wasn't thought. Well, then you, you'll find that, you know, people gra- gravitate toward like-minded people. Yeah. So you'll, you'll have buddies that, you know, want to continue to hunt with you because you, you know, have the same standards. Yeah. Go about your business the same way. You know, we've probably all been in camp with, you know, some outlier that's just, this guy's trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, you know, hey. Distance yourself from that person. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's there's also learnings, right? You also learn every year. Every year I feel like I get, I'm a different hunter. I, I think every year I sit, I'll sit back in August and think like, okay, what's what's this year? I mean, yeah. I wasn't always like some big public land advocate. I didn't, uh, there's many years I didn't understand what it really was. But True. now when I think about hunting, I think about what public lands can I go to? Or, you know, so I think I change every year in that way. And, and those crappy experiences are just a better way to articulate, like, I'm different now. You know, I probably would. Would I hunt over bait? Maybe, but I wouldn't. Um, I don't hold it up like I might have then. You know, I, I, I see it as a not a lesser form of hunting, but for me personally, not something I would do. Sure. You know, certainly not something I would fly to Canada to do. Yeah. So it's just things change, people change, and certainly hunting has changed. Well, hunting is about challenges and problem solving, yeah. and, and so that's always a learning. I'm still learning. Um, that's one of the reasons I, I love bow hunting. It's 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 a chess game, constant chess game, and and where a fair chase came in is it gave you a way to solve those problems address those challenges in an appropriate way yeah that's all yeah can't say it better than that cool good place to end it hey man thanks we get it all covered i don't think you can completely <laughs> cover it but I, I we took a pretty good swipe at it so we'll pick this back up at some bar and some trade show absolutely all right thanks keith hey thanks bro appreciate it thanks that's it that is all episode number 74 in the books thank you to keith balford thanks to remy warren and welcome to the media podcast network to remy and thanks for phil the engineer for always being always being here for me it's like my emotional crutch he's always supporting me helping me uh that was a great episode man and we're barreling very fast towards the peak time of hunting season which is why if I haven't said it already on this podcast, I think I have multiple times, you should go and subscribe to Cutting the Distance, Remy's new podcast. It's on our website. It's on iTunes. It's on Spotify. It's on Google Play. It's everywhere. The podcasts show up. Go check it out. Go check it out. Go check it out. Go check it out. Uh, Remy and I have worked very hard on this, specifically Remy. 
Um, and I've I've been been there along the way to kind of see this thing through. We've been working hard on it for for many months, and so we're glad to see it out in the world, so you can listen to it and enjoy it every single week on Thursdays. The other thing you need to do is go to TheMeatEater.com. If you're not on TheMeatEater.com regularly, you need, to be, you need to be there. We have a newsletter. You can go subscribe to that newsletter. It comes out every Wednesday evening, and there's a lot of kick-ass content on it. Uh, right now, we're running this thing called Fact Checker. Fact Checker has a lot of good content. For example, are daddy long legs poisonous? Are they venomous? Things of that nature. Fact Checker is pretty, basically... Anything you want to know in the outdoors, we'll fact check it for you. So write into us, fact checker at themeateater.com, some kind of claim that you'd like us to check out. And some of our intrepid reporters, including Spencer Newharth, will go out and figure out if it's true or not for you. So go to themeateater.com. It's great. You're going to love it. A lot of recipes, a lot of other stuff. Go there. And I think that's it for this week. I just want to end by saying thanks to everybody for for hanging with us. Um, we have really had the my DMs on Instagram. Uh, THC at TheMedia.com has been lighting up recently uh, to a point where it's hard for me to keep up. But please keep sending that feedback. Please keep letting us know what you think, good and bad. It's important to us. Um, and I never could have imagined we'd get this much feedback and have this many folks listening to this show. And it is humbling and exciting, and we're going to keep it going next week on The Hunting Collective. We'll leave you with a little old number seven. Thank you, Peace. Jack Daniels, old number seven. Tennessee whiskey got me drinking in heaven, and uh, angels start to look good to me. They're going to have to deport me to the fiery deep. Oh, to the fiery deep. Drinking in the fiery You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close... You can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give them the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So 
it's not that I don't like them. I just have Yanni use his. Then I'll have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today.